0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, our, our text this morning is uh, G- the Genesis 11 reading about the Tower of Babel, if you want to look at it a little bit. Um, thank you to Emily for reading this morning. Um, very, so powerful to hear those words. I'm not preaching on this text, but... The reading from John, just sort of a remarkable reminder that the promise of the Holy Spirit, and we're celebrating that today in Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit is linked um, with his uh, promise to teach us all things that Jesus said. That's, that's fascinating, isn't it? So, so whenever the Spirit is operating apart from the Word, you can be assured that it's not the Spirit. But that, well, that, That's another sermon. That's not why we're here today. You know, the history of humanity is is a history of sin and its destructive consequences. What is it that sin does best? You know, sin will grow and it will fester. It distorts and it brings chaos. It will pit a father against a son and a mother against a daughter. It's going to pit a nation against a nation. And it pits humanity against God. Eat this fruit, Adam. And you'll be like God. And the move toward the fruit was the opening of the floodgate of sin and its devastating force. Genesis 1 through 11 is a a history of sin and its destructive character. Cain kills his brother in Genesis chapter 4 and tries to hide the evidence. Cain, God asked, where is your brother? And yet Cain's son Lamech in the same chapter kills a man and then brags to his wives about it. Sin creeps in the door and works its way into the crevices of our world and our social order, our families and our own lives. When God created the world, he, termed, he tamed the chaotic forces and brought them into order for the sake of this new creation. And after sin breaks upon humanity, God, what does he do in the flood? He unleashes that water of chaos back onto the world, leaving one righteous man, Noah, and his family as survivors. And yet, after the flood, there's Noah in a drunken stupor with his sons shaming him. Sin still creeps at the door, still seeks to destroy, still aims to pit humanity against God. The story of sin culminates in today's reading from Genesis 11 and that famous Tower of Babel. Now, I know this is a story that we all know well. Uh, Humanity has been told back in Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood, to be fruitful and to multiply, to expand to various places in the world and to settle there. But now in Genesis 11, humanity, and think of this, consolidating its power... And it's collective social forces together in one place in contradiction to God's command. And in so doing, humanity is doing what it does best apart from God. Building a tower in memorial to their own self-achievement, to their own powers, to their pride. Come, they say, let us build a tower and let us, and here's the operative phrase, make a name for ourselves. We can see the sin of fruit, or the fruit of sin culminating in this scene. Adam, take this fruit and you'll be like God. And now the whole of humanity coming together in defiance of God, seeking to make a name for themselves apart from their creator. This story, which is so powerful, it's it's comedic, it's kind of funny in some ways. This is the place, I think, where Tragedy and comedy share so much in common. They're, they're both born out of the incongruities or the imbalances of our lives, the parts that just don't seem to add up. Tragedy focuses on suffering. Comedy focuses on the incongruities that, don't, that tend to be painless. Uh, this is why we can laugh at life at times and we can weep at it at other times. It's funny and it's tragic. And this story is tragic because we see the division of humanity The division that we know the pains of to this day. And yet the flip side of what's going on in the Tower of Babel scene was a greater evil. Humanity consolidated together in a global movement against their creator, seeking to create conditions of life where God's existence doesn't matter anymore. Boy, we could talk about that for a while. Well, maybe we should. We'll come back to it in a little bit. The comedic element in this story is the distinction, and I love, I love this, makes you smile. The, the distinction between humanity's achievement to make a name for itself by building something up to the heavens. Think of it like a, a ziggurat you might find in an Aztec ruin. But God has to come down from heaven. Take a look around and see what's going on here. Now, you're sophisticated theologians in this room, you all know that God doesn't have to come down anywhere. His being doesn't operate according to the spatial terms that you and I do. God's not out there somewhere. But the story draws attention to the ease with which God moves downward and the great difficulty that humanity has to move upward on its own. Uh, Richard Niebuhr, in his classic work entitled The Nature of Man, and I've been buried in this book for a little bit now, uh, speaks about humanity's sin and its resistance to God in ways that I've really found helpful. Now, now, I think we should all be somewhat wary about reducing any complicated things like sin and rebellion in the world down to two things, but he does this, and I actually kind of find it helpful, and here are the two things. I want to unpack it a little bit for you this morning. It, re- it relates to our story. Sensuality and pride. Sensuality. What, what's this all about? It's the denial of our transcendent relationship to God. It settles for the material world and the pleasures that this world can offer. Sensuality pants after the things of this world in order to find the satisfaction that only the transcendent, that only God can provide. This is why C.S. Lewis so famously said, we're far too easily pleased. It's it's not that our aspirations are too high when seeking pleasure, we set them far too low. Our sensuality expects creaturely things to satisfy our souls, and we'll hunt for pleasure and, and satisfaction in whatever corner of our existence that we might find. Whether that's the typical things like the bottle, or power, or sex, or even the less obvious things like whether or not our kids get into you name it college or or membership in the club finally gets approved. I'm not poking at these things, turning them uh, in and of themselves, but the devil and our flesh are experts at taking good things and turning them into ultimate things, and the end result is always the same, the great disappointment that sensuality leaves us with. So we're left with a prayer at the foot of our own Towers of Babel that we build. Teach us, O Lord, draw us, O Lord, to you and guard us, Father, from taking the good things of this world and turning them into ultimate things. And and guard me, O Lord, from hunting after the evil of this world that makes a mockery of you and your desire for me. Come, they said, let us build a great tower together. That's the danger of sensuality. But they also said, let us make a name for ourselves. And here we have the danger of pride. So pride is this denial of our own finitude. It's the flip side of sensuality. Sensuality denies our relationship to God, the transcendent. Pride is the denial of our own finitude, the limitations of our humanity. Pride is where we claim too much for ourselves. It refuses to see us in a posture of dependence. Pride seeks to overcome affinitude by human self-achievement rather than reliance on our Creator God. It fights against the limitations of our flesh, and, and then it bows at the altar of progress. It stands before the achievements of our own technology and says, just give us time and we'll overcome those things that hold us back, even our own mortality. I used to think All of these conversations about artificial intelligence melding with our own humanity and biology as the stuff of the crazies, you know, goofy, conspiratorial, off-the-grid stuff, not anymore. There are concerted efforts throughout our whole globe right now in our worship of technology and progress that are seeking to overcome our mortality by linking together our bodies and our technologies. And if you don't think it's already happening, take a look at the phones that we can't get rid of. Lord, help us. The ultimate goal of progress is the death of God and the overcoming of our human limitations. Believe me when I tell you that towers of Babel are still being built. And then God (laughs) comes down in the middle of this of humanity's great moment of self-declaration, this is, this is the incongruity of the story. God comes down and He says, "That'll be enough." And chaos ensues. No one can understand each other anymore. The languages are dispersed, and the great migration begins. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I see enough young families in here is probably on your shelves. Good book for old people to have, too, by the way tells us that with Abraham, and what a great turn of phrase, when Abraham comes on the scene, I think the story says something like this, and now God's great rescue plan begins. Just think about the contrast between Genesis 11, and you flip a page and you're in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 11, humanity declares, let us make a name for ourselves. And in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your name rate. Our hope for redemption from the sensuality and pride of our world requires us this morning to follow Father Abraham, to walk his path of faith, to turn Godward in hope for a future, a future not shaped by human self-achievement and the building of towers, but a future shaped by God's salvation, his move to redeem the world from our own tendency to destructive power. When the Spirit of God falls on his people in Acts chapter 2, all of the effects of Babel are undone on that great first day of Pentecost. Just like when God hovered over the chaos of the deep and brought order out of the chaos of the primordial world, now in Acts 2, the Spirit of God hovers over God's people and all of the diverse languages of the world don't lose their diversity, but they are no longer a barrier No longer a matter of division. Everyone can understand the language of their foreign friend. God is making a name for himself with this people and preparing us for a future with him. Maybe I'm overstating it, but I do believe that we are in shifting times, friends. The promises of progress, the promises of a future where human beings might find their true potential without God, without transcendence, Without their own bodies, these sentiments permeate our world. Towers are being built anywhere, everywhere, and Lord have mercy, I'm sure we're building our own towers ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy, calls us to himself this Pentecost Sunday again, and we pray together for God's spirit to draw us to him, away from our towers and toward his son.